Oh. Okay, good morning, everyone. I uh, hope you are all, or, or good afternoon, depending on where you are. Sure, I hope bro. That you guys can all hear me well. And like Greg mentioned, today we'll be talking about spiritual warfare. We'll be going through Ephesians chapter 6, but before we go there, I want us all to start off actually going to the Old Testament. Let's go to Second Chronicles uh, chapter 32. Uh, that's Second Chronicles chapter 32. And what we're going to do is we are going to take a, um, a look at this from the flesh to then um, take a look as, as, as to how we can be encouraged by this example in the spirit. And then we'll take a look at what is the spiritual um, way that God wants us to view our warfare. So if, so if, uh, if we are in Second uh, Chronicles chapter 32, what's going on here is that uh, the king of Assyria goes up against Judah and King Hezekiah confronts him uh, with his army. We're gonna we're going to focus on uh, we're gonna read verses six through eight and we're going to see here what uh, happens here. So it says, then he set military captains over the people, gathered them together to him in the open square of the city gate, and gave them encouragement, saying, and this is Hezekiah who's speaking. He says, "Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid nor dismayed before the king of Assyria." nor before all the multitude that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Verse 8 is a verse that I have applied um, in my life time and time again when it came to spiritual warfare, because... uh, it is a personal encouragement to me. Satan, he operates both through a spiritual realm, but he does operate through the realm of the flesh as well. He tries to use uh, people as his puppets. He tries to use an arm of flesh to come against his saints. And this is an encouragement that each and every one of us can take. That with him, with Satan is an arm of flesh. And even though he's a spiritual being, it's still an arm of flesh. Because flesh does not refer to blood and cells. It refers to an individual's own willed efforts. That's Amen. what I'm referring to. And so with Satan, with everyone who is trying to cause his will to triumph over the will of God, he is operating in the flesh, whether they are a spiritual being or not. Amen. So with him, now in this context, it is speaking about the military might from a material perspective of the Assyrians. But nonetheless, let us be encouraged that with Satan is not God. With him is only his horde of fallen angels and the demonic that he has. But mm-hmm. with us is the Lord our God, not just, you know, just standing there on the sidelines. It says that he is there to help us and to fight our battles. Amen. Amen. You will be worn out and you will capitulate if you try and fight on your own flesh. If you do not allow God to render you help, and you will not allow him to fight the battle on your behalf, don't be surprised if Satan is able to wear you out, because God is able to uh, supply you with strength. 
And the devil's hope is that he, he wants to cut you off from your supply line, God's grace, and he wants you to be operating in your flesh because he knows that your reserves are limited. God's reserves are unlimited. And when Satan is able to get you on a plane where you are fighting on your reserves, you will be worn out because Satan's reserves are much more than, than yours because he is a spiritual being. He doesn't need to sleep like you and I. Wow. So we need God to help us and to fight our battles whenever we are talking about this topic of spiritual warfare. And let us this be an encouragement to us that with him, with all of our enemies, with them is an arm of flesh. With them is only an arm of however far their power goes. And it's not their power necessarily. It's the power that God allows them to have. God limits their sphere. He has Satan on a leash and he won't allow him to go farther than he allows him to go. So with all of them is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. That is the encouragement that we have to be looking at whenever we examine what we're about to now. So now let's go and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We'll read through our main verse, and then we will uh, we'll examine what Scripture prescribes for us regarding spiritual warfare. Now, it should come no surprise to anyone that um, when you go to war, you need to have some equipment. You need to have equipment in order to do the job, to fight, to survive logistically on the field. Exactly. There are materials that you need, not just materials, but you need to know how to use those materials. A soldier is sent into battle with a, with, a, with a weapon, but what good is it if he has no idea how to use that weapon effectively? So there are a lot of different things that are going on here. And what we'll examine is that the majority of our arsenal that Paul uh, specifies for us is in the area of the defensive. But we also have a sword. You see, Amen. you can give me the thickest wall in the world, but give me enough time and I will plow right through it. There is a point where counterattack is merited, and we'll, and we'll see that with the sword of spirit. Nonetheless, let's get reading. Ephesians chapter, six, start, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 10. Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, and in the power of his might. So notice that, in the power of his might, not your own might. That is what we have seen in Second Chronicles chapter 32. Be strong in the Lord, and in the power of his might, not your own. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. You may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. 
and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So if anyone has any sort of familiarity with this passage that we have just read, we know this to be one of the the more well-known passages out of Ephesians. Uh, because it details to us as Christians what it is that is um, seen as the armor of God. Now, we obviously don't wake up in the morning and literally put on a shield on our back. We don't literally put on a helmet. We don't literally take a sword with us because after all, if we did uh, to our you know workplaces and to schools and whatnot, well, then we would be causing quite a fuss, wouldn't we? So we don't literally put on this kind of equipment. What Paul is trying to do is he is trying to take spiritual truths and principles, and he wants to deliver it to us in a parabolic way so we may understand what way we can view these different spiritual truths and principles and what they do to assist us in protecting us and in allowing us to combat the devil. So that is what we're going to do. We're going to examine what those things are. But first, we have to make sure that we understand what where the battlefield is. Because, you know, have your armor, have your sword, but you're running away from the battle. You know what you're called? You're not called a soldier. You're called a deserter. So you need to know where the battlefield is. Verse 12, Amen. for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So notice the battlefield is not the, 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 the physical realm. We do not go out there and punch people. We don't go out there and we actual, and we actually you know, conduct literal physical crusades on nations. We don't do that. Although you might ask me, why did you use a verse you know, to start off with that talked about flesh? Now you're telling me not to use the flesh. Well, we use the power of God and we live in, in uh, fleshly temples, so to speak. So we don't undermine the importance of the body. But what we are emphasizing is that the battle place originates in the spiritual. And it spills over into the area of the flesh but we have to carefully discern between the two. So we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That is not our primary root problem. It's very easy for us to get in the flesh whenever someone insults us or someone does something mean to us and we retaliate in a fleshly way without recognizing that it's the spiritual forces underneath that are using that person in a sort of uh, puppet way. And this is something that I think admittedly all of us have definitely uh, struggled with and do struggle with, but right. we can certainly also make progress on it too. So our main target is not the person. In fact, Satan is smart. He uses human shields. Mm. 
human shield. Satan's too much of a coward, or he's also, I, I would also say he's pretty wise not to put himself up front. Because by using human shields, he deflects blame off of himself and he's able to use a red herring for you to go off on and never identify him as being the real target. So don't be deceived by human shields that he uses because that's what he does. Who are you fighting against? We are fighting against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. And Daniel mentions, you know, the, the prince of Persia which we understand as being a fallen being and an angelic being who had apparently some sort of authority under Satan to conduct the spiritual activities over that region. We can assume that this is true for the nations today. There's probably a principality over perhaps America, perhaps over Europe, Russia, et cetera, uh, a sort of, there is some hierarchical structure that exists in the spirit realm that, um, where these higher level beings, they oversee the spiritual activities over the, the region that they're assigned to. So these are who we, who we are fighting against. We are fighting against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We are fighting spiritual beings. We are in a spiritual warfare, and we ought not let them to constantly use human shields against us without us ever identifying who it is that, you know, is really taking those people hostage and who's really uh, using those people as nothing more than a puppet. Using puppets is smart. It's not a dumb idea. If, if you know, let's, let's use a political example. If Russia wants to conduct a proxy war against the United States, he might use, uh, the Russians may use, a, may use a puppet state to do so because they can always say, hey, I'm not doing it. It's, it's whatever's going on down on here. They use it to shield themselves and to deflect blame. And it deceives people too. So let's not allow Satan to do the same for us. So now that we understand, according to Paul, that we are fighting spiritual beings, we need to take up our spiritual equipment that God has given to us. So let's review what that spiritual equipment is. Let's read it over again. So we have, first of all, uh, well, first, let me point out this, right? Paul gives a warning here. He says in verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. And so I asked myself this question. Why is it that we see places in scripture that says that, you know, God fights the battle for us and we should rely on the power of his might. And yet Paul is and, and that we are not to, you know, operate in the flesh. And yet Paul says, you know, do these things that you may stand. So who's doing the standing? Is it me or God? Who is it? God, what he does typically is he, he operates by the law of faith. He will do it, but we have a responsibility to. We have a responsibility to put on the armor. Exactly. The armor, God takes care of the rest because he's the one who made the armor. So if you're not going to do what even God said for your own protection, how can you stand? Amen. God takes over Amen. when you put on the equipment that he made for you. Amen. So he says in verse 14, stand therefore. So we have your waist girded with truth. We have the breastplate of righteousness. We have your feet. We have feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We have the shield of faith. We have the helmet of salvation. We have the sword of the spirit, 
and we have also some additional things that we'll address. But let's get into that. Let's let's address each and every one of these pieces of equipment that God has given to us. The first one, as we have seen, is having your waist girded with truth. Now, what does that mean? I believe, and there's different, you know, there's different uh, ways to comment on it, but I think what practical experience will tell you is that you need truth in order to see. One of the most important things to a human being is his eyesight, because it's the thing that informs him most about the world. When you do not have truth, by default, what can you have but a lie? There is no alternative. You either have a truth and everything that's opposite to true is false. And if you don't have the truth, you have a lie, you have falsity. This is why truth, I think, is listed first here. Because without truth, you have nothing. You only have darkness. You only have a lie. How can you see? How can you fight if you can't see? Have you ever seen a blind soldier in combat? It's not a good idea, I'll tell you. So we have to make sure that we see. And the way that we are enabled to see is by believing the truth. You know, the Pharisees, it says of them that they, they're readers of the law. But they were called blind Pharisees. Because though they studied the scripture the way that they did, they failed to see the truth before their eyes, quite literally standing there. So we need to be lovers of the truth. The truth is many in many ways harsh and is unpleasant. Practical experience tells us that. So what we, what we can do as a church, I posit, is we can encourage one another and be gentle towards one another when it comes to the area of the truth. But we cannot hate the truth. If we turn away from the truth, we have turned to a lie. Amen. If the truth is that God desires that there be separation between, um, between sexual activity between men and women, so be it. If we reject a fundamental truth like that, don't be surprised when disaster falls. Exactly. Amen. So we need to be lovers of the truth. Not only, remember, the Bible says, do not be hearers of the word only, but do it. So we do not only want to hear the truth, we want to exercise the truth. And that is what our next principle is about. It says, after being girded with truth, your waist have been girded with truth, having the breastplate, the breastplate of righteousness. This is our first real big item, a breastplate. Um, I'm, I'm not going to go into history, but breastplates are a very major part of, of the arsenal. And it, and it, it saves people. That's why they wear it. Because people, no one takes, in combat, you, you can't afford to take something useless with you. You only take what's necessary. So this breastplate is our first major part of our equipment. And what is it? It is righteousness. Now, this is strange. Aren't we already justified? Aren't we already righteous by the blood of Christ? We are. But this righteousness speaks of what uh, people would call a practical righteousness. It is a sort of righteousness that we see from people like Job. 
Job was still a sinful man, yet God called him righteous. How, how, how is that possible? Well, what you have to understand is that there is a legal declaration of righteousness, and then there is the essence of what someone is in their heart, though they be imperfect. So by, by Christ's blood, we are justified. We are declared legally to be righteous. But when we do so, we all know as Christians that we don't say, okay, well, let's sin abound because grace has been given towards me. No, we start to act in a way that is consistent with the, with the newborn seed that is in us, the seed Amen. of our father, and we start to act according to that. And when we do so, we become practically righteousness. We are not, not now not only legally righteous, but in practice, we seek to do righteousness. And we're not going to be perfect at it. But it is something that God's grace enables us to continue growing in and continue to be sanctified in. And we learn to do what is right. We learn to become practically righteous. We practice righteousness. It is a lifestyle. It's a habit. It's something that we don't, again, do perfectly every second of the day. But it is something that becomes our habit, our practice. It becomes core to who we are. And when we fail to do that, there's a part of us that, that, that feels empty when we recognize that we have not done that. What well, has become now natural to us. Amen. So we want to make sure that we are practically, we are, we are practically living out righteously. Here's how truth and righteousness goes together. When you know the truth, you believe the truth. You see your surroundings, you see the areas where it's unsafe, and you see the areas where it's safe. Well, what good is that if you, if you in your will, go to where it is unsafe and you, found, and you find yourself slain? Did truth do you a disservice? No, you did yourself a disservice because you knew what the truth was. The truth conveyed everything accurately to you, and you still made a dumb decision. I mean, it doesn't get, doesn't get that much more spiritual than that. Um, so with practical righteousness, we take that which is, and now we start to walk on the paths that God wants us to walk on. And just by us doing that, there's already an inherent safety. We're not walking on, on a cliff that it might just fall, but we are walking now on a, now don't take this in the wrong context. We're walking on a broad place. The Psalms say that, that, my, that I was put on a, on a broad place where, where my feet aren't going to stumble. We're not talking about a broad way to hell. We're talking about a safe area. God does that. He picks up the person he places in there. But without yeah. this practical righteousness, what do you get yourself into? If, you're, if you know the truth and you're not practicing righteousness, in fact, you are an anathema. What does Hebrews say? It says that those who come to the truth and yet despise the sacrifice of Christ, what more sacrifice remains for them? Having truth is a wonderful thing, but when it's not coupled with practical practice righteousness, it becomes actually a dangerous thing because there's greater condemnation to be had. So let's continue. The third thing that we have in our arsenal is the gospel of peace. Now, it's interesting because, you know, some people may say that 
this means that you preach the gospel to people. You're ready to preach the gospel. I believe that that is a good thing, of course. Um, I think that it could, that there's a little bit of room to, to, to see where, 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 um, where Paul is, is trying to lead us in this area. But nonetheless, I think whatever I say on this, as it is, as I've purposed it in my conscience, it will be nonetheless consistent with the narrative of scripture. So the first thing here, I think that we should address is not actually sharing the gospel here, because I think Greg, you heard him what he said, he was in this place of being attacked mentally. And your first concern when you're under attack is how do I get myself, you know, out of this? People may say that's selfish, but I would say, how so? I think it's natural because how can you help others if you yourself are in a place where you can't even help yourself? Doesn't Jesus say, take the log out of your own eye and then take the log out of your brother's eye? So I think it's good for us to recognize that we do need to be taken care of. Now, that doesn't mean that it, that we have to go to an extent where we say, well, you know, I come first over everyone. That's not in the heart of the gospel either, but we do need to be taken care of. So what are we talking about here with the gospel? I believe, and I pray that I'm correct on this, but may the Holy Spirit enlighten me if I'm not. I believe what this means is that we properly understand what the gospel really is. Because if you have truth and you have practical righteousness, but you are in a place where Satan is convincing you that you um, that you're that you need to be righteous, you're doing righteousness, but all you failed there, up oh, you failed here. There's no grace in this gospel that you know. What are you going to do? You're going to become hopeless. You're going to be driven to despair, and just for the sake of relief, you're going to depart from the faith. That's Satan's goal. When we don't understand the grace of Christ, when we don't understand the gospel, we miss the heart of God and we miss his intentions towards us. His intention is not to be a taskmaster. His intention is to be a father that disciplines his children so that his children might be looked on by other people may say, what a wonderful father you've had raise you. Amen. Not what a terrible boss you have. Well, I'm glad I'm, Satan's my boss. Amen, amen. That's that's blasphemy. We don't want we don't want God to be blasphemed that way. We want people to praise God as a result of what He does with us. That's why we need to understand the gospel. We need to understand what is the nature of our justification. Paul says, "Teach doctrine." We need to understand how are we made right before God. It is the duty of the parents in this room to teach their kids properly basic christian doctrine so that the kids can understand what it it really is so that they don't have a misconception and then walk away because of a misconception because satan will gladly take a lie he'll take he'll you give him an inch he'll take two miles he'll say thank you very much no apologies so understand the gospel message understand what the gospel really is about it's about the grace of God being extended to us. We need his grace more than we, than, more than we need the air that we breathe now. Amen. And when we understand that it is the law of faith, it's not the law of righteousness that saves because the law of righteousness condemns us all as unrighteous. It is the law of faith from the beginning. It was accounted to Abraham for righteousness when he believed God. In the Amen. law, 
It was do this and you shall live. People say, by faith, I believe that Moses, you are God, uh, God's instrument to save us from Egypt. And I will listen to what God is commanding to me through your lips by this law that you give me. I do that by faith. Exactly. In the New Testament, it's what are the works of God? Believe on him whom God has sent. It's always been the law of faith. It always will be the law of faith. We need to understand the gospel because without us understanding what God has done for us, how can we remember what he's done for us? If we don't remember that he has taken us out of Egypt, might we, might we not go wandering back in? We need to remember what Egypt was like. Amen. For how God got us out of Egypt. That's why God had all these feasts to remind them, what have I done for you? If we forsake the gospel out of our lives and we are not reminded of it, we will forget the grace of God in our lives. And that's a dangerous place to be. Because what will happen to us is what happened to the Galatians. Have you then, who have started in the spirit, are being made perfect in the flesh? We need to make sure that we understand the gospel. The next thing that we have on our list is above all the shield of faith. And I've been alluding to this, right? Faith is the law. It's the law of faith that saves. What is faith? Faith is when we trust God. It's not just us being, it's not wishful thinking. Thinking, oh, I wish God will save me. Oh, I I hope that he will. Even though I know that many of us can feel that way because of how burdened we might be with our circumstances. And I mean not to poke fun at that because I've been there. I know what it's like. Faith is whenever you say, I don't feel that this is true, but I'm not going to allow my feelings to decide what is true. Because guess what? Fact check, your, your feelings don't determine what the facts are. If God has called you clean, who are you to say that you are unclean? If God says that you are not clean, who are you to call yourself clean? So why is faith the shield here? Faith is the shield because if we have a trust in God that cannot be shaken, no matter what circumstances you face, as horrible as they might be, as hopeless as they might seem, you will say that hopelessness that I perceive as hopelessness is nothing but a lie. There is hope because Christ, who is my hope, has died and is risen. Amen. Amen. This is why faith is the shield. It is the largest part of the armor. It's more important than the than the breastplate because the shield covers a greater area. And I'm sure you know you would rather take a sword to the shield than a short than, than a sword to the breastplate, even though you may have confidence in your in your breath in your breastplate. So, so, so this shield, it quenches the darts of the fiery one because Satan's attacking you with arrows all the day, right? Uh, shoot him that negative thought. Oh, shoot him that thought. Tell him it's his. You know, 
doesn't John says, doesn't John say that if our hearts condemn us, we have confidence towards God? That's what faith is. That's what faith is. Amen. When we are girded by faith and we say, I am unrighteous of my own self, but it's Christ who has declared me righteous. Even though I fail to be practically righteous, if God slays me, yet I will trust in him. Because I trust in his good character. And you see what you're doing there? You are exercising the law of faith. God has promised that he will not forsake the righteous. And he has made you righteous through Christ. Amen. This is why faith is this shield that quenches those darts. Because with real faith, we will recognize, I feel this way, but it is not what reality actually is. Your feelings don't determine what's true. God's word determines what's true. And when you put your faith in the word of God and you don't rely on your feelings, you will be at a much better place. I want to take a look at some of uh, the verses. Um, Let's see here. There's one more, and then we'll take a look at some extra verses that I, I, I prepared. So we have next this helmet. It is the helmet of salvation. Um, this is where we, I think, need some more verses because it's easy to look at these different equipments. And unless it says exactly what it is, it's easy for me to be, you know, over spiritual and be like, well, this is exactly, you know, what it means, what not. At least when it tells me it's the shield of faith, I have an area to operate. And that's the area of faith. When it tells me the helmet of salvation, it's like, well, salvation is my area. But what specifically about salvation? Is it the fact that I have salvation? Well, why do I need armor if I already have salvation? I think in many ways, um, there is a hope that is attached to this, the hope of salvation. It's not just salvation in and of itself, though, of course, salvation is what protects our head, right? And when Satan keeps, and this is where I'm going to go on a this is where I may over-spiritualize it and not be necessarily exactly at where the text is saying, but, you know, Satan, he, he attacks us in the mind. So if you truly believe that you have salvation and you have assurance of, of your salvation, that helmet is going to protect you. Now, I don't know if that's exactly what the text is insinuating, but it's one way to look at it. Remember, this is parabolic anyway, so I guess I can do it. So understand that your helmet of salvation is there to protect your head protect whatever satan might shoot into there but also couple it with faith faith and hope let's take a look at what the word of god has to say about these things let's take a look at the hope of salvation let's go to one timothy quickly chapter 10 There isn't a chapter 10. Oh, yeah, that's verse 10. 1 Timothy 4, chapter 10. There you go. The Pope corrected me. <laughs> Pope Gregorius Maximus. All right. Oh, so, what is that? <laughs> what's that? <laughs> yeah, I tend to do that a lot. Like, I'll just be looking at my outline. I'll be like, yeah, chapter 10. It'd be funny, though, if Greg, I said, but wait, what if I told you there was a chapter 10? <laughs> it'd be apocrypha or something, bro. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, it'd be, you know, apocrypha or something. Okay, guys. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. I hope that I gave you enough time with that little bit of banter. 
um, to get there. So let's read what, what Paul says here uh, to Timothy and also to us by default. For to this end, we both labor and suffer approach. So look, this is a great context to, for him to put on his armor of God. What does he say on this? Well, he continues saying, because we trust in living God. So he's suffering because he's trusting in living God. But actually, actually, I think that's, no, wait, let me read it again. For to this end, we both labor and suffer approach because we trust in the living God, who is a savior of all men, especially of those who believe. These things command and teach. So yes, again, he is suffering and he's laboring for God. But look what he's doing in the midst. Even though he's suffering, he is, he is trusting. He is verbally acknowledging that he is a savior of all men. And of course, especially those who believe. And, he's, and he exhorts us and says, these things command and teach. So that's what we're doing here today. We're teaching you. We're commanding you. That though we will suffer persecution, if you're trusting in God, I mean, if you're a soldier, don't be surprised when you're being fired on. Amen. It's it's ludicrous for you to for you to enlist in the army and then exactly. say, "What? I never knew I was going to go to war. What? Let me, let, me, <laughs> let me check my contract again. Let me see if there's a stipulation there. You don't do that." So, but this is a good thing because it's a it's a backhanded compliment from Satan. He's saying, "You're on his side, therefore I have to attack you." Satan doesn't attack his own; he doesn't need to. So, take it as an encouragement from your enemy, if you if if you want to. Um. So we will we will suffer, and we will deal with with reproaches because of our trust in God. But what's greater? Our trust in God and his faithfulness con- conjoined with that or these or, or these attacks. It's, it's, it's God's faithfulness that triumphs. After all, he raises the dead. So even if our enemy tears us apart, Amen. he will raise us up. All right. Let's take a look at another one. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. That's again, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. I'll, I'll go quickly now. Um, yes, it says this. Oh, I'll just start at verse 19 because it's a beautiful passage. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. So notice that it's the blood of Jesus that grants us access to God, right? Our legal declaration of justification and righteousness. 20, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is in his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. So there again, we can see kind of that practical righteousness, right? They are changed. Their their hearts are sprinkled from that evil conscience and their bodies are washed with pure water, right? So they've been cleansed um, via the justification of the blood of Christ that was poured out. And now they are coming to a place where they are starting to have this desire to have a practical righteousness. Now, what does it say after this? It says in verse 23, let us hold, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So hold to your hope. That helmet, hold on to it. In fact, in our modern day war, it's, it's probably one of the more important pieces of equipment. Even back then, it was still... 
important because what what good is is all that if you can just get donked on the head the head after all is the most important part and that's where knockout blows occur most of the time yeah like goliath exactly right so the helmet is is extremely important hold fast the confession if you confess that jesus is your high priest what are you confessing you're confessing that he is the sacrifice that took away your sins but if you forsake that confession and you deny him what you're saying is he is not the sacrifice that takes away my sins amen therefore how do you have forgiveness that is why you have to hold fast to your confession and your hope without wavering. Why do we need hope? Hope is the, you know, is the substance of things hoped for. We know that. Uh, it also says, he who promises faithful. Faith and hope go together. Because when you trust God, trusting is the now. When you trust God now, hope is when you accept that he will remain trustworthy. And that he will not change on you. That is what hope is, that God will remain faithful. Faith is that he is faithful now and that he is trustworthy now. But hope is also that he will remain faithful and that he will not forget or forsake his promise towards those who believe. And he will not allow me to perish, even though my body be burned, not a hair will be, not a hair will be lost on my body. For he who promised is faithful. Hope and faith come together. There's a blend, there's a mix, but they're also separate. And finally, with regards to hope, Romans 5, 5, I'm just going to skip there and read that. Romans 5, 5. Well, I'll just start at verse one because I love context. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Who is he that condemns? If we have been at peace with Christ, who, who is the devil to say, God is still at war with you? When it says that we've been justified by faith and we have peace with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see, guys? Rejection of truth is you accepting a lie. Don't do that to yourself. Fight to believe what the word says. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So again, the law of faith is what gives us access. And rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. See, there's also hope again. Right, Hope also allows us to rejoice in our faith because we know that it is not ill-fated. When people look at this present world and they see all the terrible things, how can they have hope when things get worse day by day? But we, do, we, don't, we don't have those feelings because though we know that, the, that things will get worse and worse in the, in the near-term sense, we know that ultimately our faith and our hope is not ill-fated. If we hope in the world, look at your returns. Millions of millions of deaths in the last, you know, century in the 20th. Facts. Amen. So hope in the world if you 
must, but you won't get much return out of it. But we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. So these things, when we suffer them, they are for our, our good, ultimately. Now, hope does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Hope also has, has this understanding that God is, is loving. And when we accept that God is love, when we believe that truth, it allows us to have faith and hope. Because isn't trust and faithfulness a fruit of love? Does a man who loves his wife cheat on her? And if this husband is truly loving, will he not remain faithful? He will stay faithful. So because we have faith in God, because we believe his word, even if we don't feel like it, it, it takes time to come to a place where we, where we are in tune with that because we come from damaged backgrounds. But when you rest your hope on scripture and you treat it like a legal contract between you and God, you can rest assured that God will not violate his own word. Amen. And so God, because of the love that he has poured out into our hearts, we therefore are able to hope because we know we either believe based on scripture that he's loving or, and then hopefully we come to a place where we start to see that actually work out in our lives and we praise him and we glorify him for that. That is why hope is so important. Because if you believe you're on an ill-fated, ill-fated, ill-fated mission, do you want to go? They say that morale is among the most important things in warfare. If your soldiers don't believe in the cause that they're fighting for, how are they going to fight effectively? They're not going to want to fight. They're not going to want to put in the effort. Amen. So your morale needs to be up. And that morale can come from the hope that we have in Christ. And for you military vets, you know, I think you, you'll appreciate these analogies that I'm making. But after all, it's Paul's at the base. Um, moving on, sword of the spirit. Very quickly, this is where our lesson is also continuing. So Matthew chapter 4, everyone. Now be quick. Matthew chapter 4, we're going we're gonna to examine what Jesus does. So why are we going to Matthew chapter 4? Well, if you recall, in Ephesians chapter 6, it talks about the sword of spirit. And that's what we're talking about. Uh, thank you, Malachi. Yes, I hope you enjoy them. We're talking about the sword of spirit now. It is our weapon. And what does, what does Ephesians 6 say? It says, it which is the word of God. I found that the best, I found that a very good way to teach this, what the sword of spirit is, is to show how, how other people have used it. And we're going to see how Jesus uses the word of God as his sword when he is in his trial. So in Matthew chapter four, uh, I'll, I'll read at verse one and we'll probably go for those of you who are, yeah, we'll go to just 11. So then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward, he was hungry. 
Now, when the tempter came to him and he said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands, they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Let's go through this. Jesus is led into the wilderness and he's tempted. Satan tells him to do something. He tells him, for example, well, first of all, look at this. What do you see in chapter three? In chapter three, Jesus is baptized and a voice from heaven says that this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That is what we see. At least, um, trying to, yes. Yes, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Notice what Satan does. If you are the son of God, few verses before, you are, you are my son. Are you? If you are, turn these stones into bread. You know you want to. After all, God, your taskmaster, has been starving you for these 40 days. Why not? What does Jesus do? Does he argue with him? No. Jesus says it is written. He points to God's word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I believe that's Deuteronomy chapter five, verse eight. I'm not going to check the reference now because that takes time and the print is small. But do you see what Jesus does here? He doesn't argue. He points to God's word and says there. And notice Derek Prince said, the devil didn't argue with Jesus. This is the word of God. So why should you? Man. The devil didn't question it. So why should you? That's good. Verse five, right? The devil then took him up onto the temple. Now look, this is where we get Satan's strategies. What does Satan do now? He says, I see your game. Let me, let me try this. He quotes scripture. He quotes Psalm 91. He says, if you are the son of, see, he, he again tempts him with doubt. Are you the son of God? Well, if you are, show me, prove it to yourself and to me, prove it to all. Are you the son of God? He says, throw yourself down for it is written. And he quotes scripture. It's shocker. The devil knows how to quote scripture. Oh, yes, he does. What does he do though? He takes that out of context and he uses it to an end that glorifies not God, but man or himself. He says, he shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands, they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone. This is where so many Christians make errors. They understand what the Bible says, but what they don't is they don't know enough about the word of God to know that this would be a terrible idea. 
Many Christians will look at this passage and say, well, it does say that in Psalm 91, so let me do it. No, because Jesus knew more because he studied the scriptures. Knowledge, guys, is not a replacement for knowledge. I mean, well, actually, ignorance is not a replacement for knowledge. You need to be knowledgeable. God's grace is in a certain God's grace in it of itself is not a replacement for knowledge. Why? Because God's grace grants you knowledge so that you can be successful. Amen. God isn't going to, God isn't going to, you know, come down in an angelic being and, and, and feed you like a toddler. He grants you the grace to produce food. So we need to be knowledgeable about our scriptures. This goes back against the truth that we were talking about. Anyway, so Jesus, knowing scripture says, you're not getting me. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Yes, the enemy will attempt to exploit uncertainties in us. We need to know the word of God and what it says. So what does the devil do? Well, he tries to get him. He tries to give him all the nations. What's the difference? Isn't God giving Jesus all the nations? What's the difference? The difference is, is that the, the one that the devil is trying to give him is, is without the cross. Jesus rejects it. It says, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and only him you shall serve. So here's how we use the sword of the Spirit. In a very practical way, if you need to, quote scripture out loud. Do you confess it or do you not? What I found helpful in my walk is, you know, if you are tempted with a certain sin, quote a passage of scripture that would counter that very well. If you are if you are dealing with intrusive thoughts and condemning thoughts, quote scriptures that would deal with that. And I could sit here and I could give you good examples, but I found that a better exercise and what will help you to and what would be better for you personally is if you look through scripture and find the verses that you find personally most encouraging. Like the one that I mentioned from Second Chronicles. It's in a very obscure place in the Old Testament, but it's one of the ones that I find extremely encouraging. So do your homework, find verses that you can use to counter Satan with whenever he tempts you with certain feelings, whenever he tempts you with, with certain temptations. If he tempts you that it says, you know, God is not going to save you, you know, quote a scripture that, you know, that counters that. I think a good one is, um, is John 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. He who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. That's ironclad promise. And guess what? It's in yeah. blood too, because Jesus died for that statement. Jesus died for all the statements he made. He died because he stated stuff. So use scripture, guys, as your sword and put your trust in it. And if you don't trust your sword, you're not going to use it very well. If you don't trust your rifle, someone help you go into combat. How can you have any confidence if you don't believe your rifle is going to fire or work when you go in there? Not a great idea. Now going, uh, let's go to Matthew 26, verse 41. So that's the bit on the sword of spirit. Paul also mentions in Ephesians chapter 6, as we are closing up here, making prayer for the saints. There's a, there's a practical reason for this. First of all, Jesus says, you know, asking it shall be given. It doesn't say hope and it will be given. Desire and it will be given. Ask and it will be given. 
So we, we are endowed with the responsibility of asking because God is not a, God is not, you know, a servant. He's not one of those parents that, that, um, that's, that just serves like a, like some of those, uh, un- unfortunately pathetic parents that cater to their every child's, you know, wish when, 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 the, when the, when the, when the little princess starts to throw a tantrum, it's like, Oh honey. Okay. Okay. You know, we'll get you the, the, the $3,000, you know, diamond studded <laughs> Apple phone. Right. God doesn't do that. Right. And then, you know, I'm not going to go down that road, but um, God, he, he raises responsible children, children, by whom, when you look at their example, people can say, what a father you have. He has raised you well. May he be blessed. That is the kind of children God wants to make us into. And so we need to ask, because that's a part of the responsibility that God has endowed us to, endowed us to, um, endowed us with. God, yes, takes us care takes care of us for a time, but as we grow, responsibilities are committed to us as it would be expected of a normal, growing, healthy child. Right? This is, this is why society rages against the 35-year-olds still playing video games in their parents' basement without a job. Because we expect responsibility from them that they're not taking. So let's make sure that we are asking God, right? And praying uh, according to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter six, but I, I wanted to draw your attention to Matthew 26, because there's a second aspect that I wanted to touch on this. We're at verse 41 here. A very famous verse. Jesus says, uh, let's start at verse 40. Then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. This is in the garden of Gethsemane before Jesus' crucifixion. And Jesus said to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me an hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think you guys are familiar enough with this passage that I don't have to exposit on it, but there's, there's a lot of different reasons. There is no singular reason that I can point to as to why Paul says, you know, pray for the saints. There's a, there's a lot. There's the practical aspect of we exercise trust in God when we ask him for anything. There is the aspect of we're showing love to our neighbors, in this case, our brothers and sisters, whenever we pray on their behalf and we act as an intercessor for them. There's also the the aspect of that when we are prayerful, we are watching and we are standing. There's a lot of different reasons for this, but it's good for us to do so. And finally, if we go back to Ephesians chapter 6, uh, Paul mentions that he desires that prayers would be made for him so that he may open his mouth to, to, to spread the gospel as God gives him opportunity so that he may speak boldly as he ought to. So I think this is a charge for us as Christians to pray for our labors, kind of something that we have been praying about in our uh, you know, prayer circles and, um, and this stuff that we've been talking about in our studies previously as well. So praying for our laborers as well. All these things um, are helpful for building up this armor that we are to wear.
let's review what that armor is. This armor is one where we, first and foremost, come to a knowledge of the truth. We understand what the real condition of reality is. We understand our sinful condition. And as a result, we exercise, based on what we know is true about reality, we exercise faith towards God. We become justified because of that. And then we work out our practical righteousness. And therefore, because we are walking in good paths, we're not walking on risky paths that lead to an undesirable destination. Amen. And we will continue on that path as long as we continue to keep our eyes open to the truth. We understand the gospel. We understand what Christ did for us. We, we, we believe what he did for us. And we remember what he did for us so that we would not be forgetful. And so we would remain tethered to him. There's a reason why God wanted the Israelites to have reminders. Because forgetfulness, it happens. And in, in, in zeal, you know, young Christians may think that, oh, I'm not going to fall away because I'm really zealous. I mean, I can't imagine that. Like, I could never, you know, get myself to the point. But if you allow yourself to be distracted enough, if you forget um, many of the good things that God has done, and you allow your reminders to slip away, you will forget. So we need to make sure that we are remembering the gospel and what it is. We need to be reminded of the gospel daily. Uh, we need to take that shield of faith. Trusting God is iron. It will be ironclad, and it is combined with hope. God is trustworthy today. That's faith. God will be trustworthy tomorrow, and I have no doubt. That is hope. He will accomplish that which he has said that he will do. He will. He absolutely will do it. He will not fail me and he will not forsake me. And therefore, my quest treading on this road of conflict and of battle is not ill-fated because I will make it to my goal. Amen. And God will assist me too. And of course, we wear our helmet, that helmet of the hope of salvation. We take our sword and we combat the devil, and all the variety of ways that he seeks to ensnare us. And what we combat these spiritual principalities with is with the word of God. Word, God's word will not fail. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for a tittle of his word to fail or fall away or to remain unfulfilled. And finally, we combine this with prayer, prayer that we all might put on our armor, that God may all that God may preserve us from the evil one and that those who are called as laborers, that they would put on their armor and that they also would be um, able to open their mouths to speak the oracles of God to those who will listen and to preach the saving gospel to many so that those who will be saved may also start to put on their armor. And the first bit that they'll be enlightened to is, of course, the bit of truth. The truth is the, first, is the thing that they put on first. And with Amen. that, we end um, the teaching. I hope it was edifying. And I'll allow uh, Greg, uh, Brother Greg, to uh, uh, lead us as he chooses whether to close us out or whatnot.